0: It's only test. Hello, and welcome to The Uncover Up. I'm one of your co-hosts, Nathan Radke, and joining me today in the bunker is, I think, the ghost of Dr. Lee (laughs) Kuhn.
1: Happy New Year, everyone. Hi, Nathan. Glad to be back. I am feeling better than I was before. Still haven't fully recovered. It really kind of, December took it out of me.
0: I mean, you're in your 40s. Are you ever going to really fully recover from anything? No.
1: No, I don't, I don't think that is a condition you recover from. It just yeah. actually gets worse yeah. as, as, as time goes on. But it's good to be here. It's good to see you. How are you doing?
0: I'm looking forward to a new year of Uncover Up episodes. So am I. Last year, of course, we talked about the flying saucer phenomenon. And this year, we're going to be talking about cabals. Yes, we are. And secret puppeteers. Yep. But not today. Not today, because we gotta we gotta clean some stuff out before we jump into the new year. There's stuff to clean out of the junk drawer,
1: right? So it's really fun to just sort of start the new year with something fun and see what's in the junk drawer. Who's yeah. gonna go first?
0: Uh, I'll go first. You I'll go reach first. in and grab something. All
1: right. Yeah, that's that that's some good sound effect right there. Yeah. What you got?
0: March twelfth, nineteen sixty-five. Yeah. Chelsea, Massachusetts, Okay. in a back alley near an office building. In the middle of the night, there's a man lying on his back, holding a screwdriver and quickly running out of life because he's been shot six times Oh, by three different firearms.
1: I don't know if you really get the concept of fun because we are supposed to be having some fun here as our first junk drawer episode of the year. And you are starting with a murder scene in a back alley.
0: Yeah, and it's only going to get worse from here. Okay. So the man's name was Edward Deegan, a.k.a. Teddy. Okay. Now he's got an a.k.a. because he's a little bit mobbed up.
1: Oh,
0: Uh, it's a a mob hit. It's a mob hit. He was a former boxer and just like a small-time local hood. Like this isn't some kind of this is kinda, like
1: mob all the way down.
0: Like yeah, this is boxer. The, he's a boxer. He's got, he's, a, he's
1: got his. He's got his name. He's he's got a screwdriver. It's a back alley. I mean, it, exactly. Honestly. This
0: is a mobby story. And he had probably been involved in a recent holdup of a local bookie. So it's, <laughs> it just keeps it just, getting more mobby. It just keeps getting mobbier. And that bookie, who he had robbed, yeah. was much more mobbed up than him. I see. Which provided a pretty clear motive for this murder. Yeah. Okay. Case case closed. My turn. Well, almost case closed. We'll All get right. we'll, we'll get there. Now, this guy Deegan, the murdered man, had also been involved in a few robberies against the Patriarcha crime family. Which, uh-huh. Again, not a great way to extend your lifespan. Right. Now, being a mob-related case, the FBI got on the scene, mm-hmm. rounded up their suspects. Okay. We had Peter Lamona, Ronald Cassesso, Louis Greco, Henry Tamilio, Joseph Silvati, and strangely Roy French. <laughs> okay. All six men were found guilty. Oh. Thanks to some top-notch police work and a witness that came forward named Joseph Barbosa. Remember him, he'll come back. And he spilled the beans on the killers. Okay. So Lamone and Cassesso and Greco and Tamilio were all sentenced to death for murder. Oh dear. And French and Salvati were sentenced to life in prison for accessory to murder. Right. Okay. Now, before any of the men could be executed, Massachusetts abolished the death penalty. Too late for the witches of Salem, of course. Right. But that meant that the men all ended up with life sentences. Okay. Job well done. I mean, by our standards, it's a pretty nice, straightforward story.
1: Very straightforward.
0: And you got to give props to the FBI for it. Except. Except, here's the thing. Was this a job well done? Because, no, it wasn't.
1: No, okay. No, it wasn't
0: a job. You're well- asking no, no. me because I yeah. didn't
1: do the research. So, yeah. okay.
0: I mean, that was a rhetorical question. Let me allow me to answer my rhetorical question. Yes, please question. do. It was no, not. This was not a job well done. This okay. was a job extraordinarily poorly done. Oh, because here's the thing: federal law enforcement agencies had gathered a lot of data about this crime, mm-hmm. and the information given in trial by that star witness Barboza contradicted most of the evidence that had been collected. Okay, that's a bit strange already. Yep. Now that information that had been collected by the feds was kept, was held back from both the defendants and the prosecutors. Okay. Which is weird. Yeah. Why is that? Why is that? Well, here's the thing. Let's go back to Deegan dying in an alley. Okay. You know who knew that was about to happen? No. The FBI. Really? The FBI knew he was about to be murdered.
1: Oh, dear. Did they have a guy on the inside? Is that how this went down?
0: Well, they had a guy on the inside. The Justice Department had microphone surveillance information. Because it's the 60s. Right. So they were massively overreaching with their surveillance projects. Yeah. And they had surveillance information showing that the head of the Patriarcha family had ordered the murder of Deegan. Okay. So they knew he was going to get killed, and they didn't do anything about it.
1: They didn't do anything about it.
0: The FBI also knew all those guys who got sentenced, Lamone, Cassesso, Greco, Tamilio, Salvati French, the FBI also knew those guys weren't in on it. Oh. Those guys, some of whom were sentenced to death, the FBI knew they hadn't done it. Wow. And they held that information back from the prosecutor and the defendants, of course. The FBI also knew who the real murderers were. Again, from the wiretaps. One was Joseph Barboza. Aha. AKA the animal. Oh, okay. The star witness of the trial and member of the Patriarca crime family. Mm-hmm. Another one of the killers was Vincent Flemmy, a.k.a. Jimmy the Bear, who had already been charged with several murders, and Deegan was killed because of the robberies he had pulled off against the Patriarca family. What makes it even worse, I mean, it's already bad. It means that the FBI allowed a guy to get killed. Yeah. And technically, it meant that the FBI was about to let four other guys get killed with the death penalty. Yeah. At the time, they didn't know that the death penalty was going to get rescinded. Of course not. So they thought these guys were being marched off to like the gas chamber. Yep. And Barboza, that witness who had told all those lies in court, I mean, he had been coached by two FBI agents to lie, Hmm. H. Paul Rico and Dennis Condon, in order to make his lies in court, aka perjury, more believable. Huh. So what, what in the world is going on here?
1: What in the world is going
0: on? The FBI was using Joseph the Animal Barboza and Jimmy the Bear Flemmy as informers. Okay, and they were willing to let people be murdered to protect those informers. Okay, it wasn't until almost the twenty-first century that these facts came to light. By which time, the men who were charged, who again the FBI knew didn't do it, had spent over thirty years in prison, and wow. two of them, two of them had died in prison. Oh wow! Barboza not only was he able to get away with murder. But he was also able to set up a bunch of men who hadn't done it in order to like settle some previous scores. So this is just a mess. Yeah. This is this is this is so filthy. Yeah. This whole thing.
1: I mean, I'm guessing just to add dirt upon the filth that the men who
0: to add dirt upon the filth.
1: Yes. It's very poetic, right? I'm guessing that they probably. Had done some nasty things in oh, their sure. lifetime. Yeah. I'm not trying to
0: excuse it. But they hadn't but done this nasty they thing. They hadn't
1: done this thing. Yeah. So they were being punished for something they didn't do and not punished for other things that they did do.
0: Yeah. Which isn't how the court system is supposed to work. You no, know, that's it's supposed true. to just walk through the town slapping people in the back of the head saying, well, I'm sure you did something. In which case, y- you'd probably be right. Yeah. Everyone's done something. But it's done something. But doesn't mean you get slapped in the back of the head or sent to prison for your whole life without a fair trial or to death row or to death row so what is the justification for this i mean we come across this when we're looking at especially cold war stuff with the cia or the fbi and things like cyclone or ajax these these operations that just were absolutely again filthy and destructive and ended up with catastrophic results. And there's always a justification for it. Sure. Often in the Cold War, the justification was the enemy of my enemy is my friend. Yeah. How well did that go in the Cold War?
1: Well, it depends who you were. I mean, if you were one of the receiving people of the big contract, it it worked fantastically. If you were Skunk Works, if you were SRI, if you were the researchers behind some of these, you know, in the Jason project, that, that kind of logic worked fantastically well. But from a citizen, democratic citizen perspective, where we want transparency, we don't want governmental overreach, it didn't work well at all. It was a disaster. And then you have secrecy on top of all of this, which just gives basically free reign to these organizations to do whatever they want. They have the justification. They don't have any oversight. And I guess it leads to the FBI condemning people to death.
0: Sunshine is the best disinfectant, as they say. There wasn't a lot of sunshine shining on the FBI or the CIA no. in the 50s, 60s, and 70s. No. Well, I mean, in the 70s, of course, it caught up with them.
1: It did. We have an episode of that.
0: I think we have like a dozen, lot, dozens of We have lots of episodes. It's true. Yeah. So what was the what was the idea that they used in order to get to sleep at night, knowing that they were responsible for the deaths of innocent people? The ends justify the means. Right. Yeah, sure. So let's have a bit of a philosophical conversation about that. What does it mean to say the ends justify the means?
1: Well, that the, your goal, if it is righteous, anything that you do to reach that goal is by extension also righteous, even if it isn't. Yeah. So if if you are trying to save humanity from nuclear annihilation, for example, which is I think a goal that we can all agree is a good one. Okay. then you might say, well, taking a couple of people in vulnerable populations and doing illegal experiments on them, well, it's not a nice thing, but if it justifies or if it actually leads to this end of preventing a global war, then it's okay.
0: So the argument goes. Yeah. Now, of course, as professional ethicists, Well, that's just one of us. You're the professional ethicist. As a professional ethicist and a published expert on Aristotle.
1: Yes. He's not even kidding about that.
0: Yeah. I should be, though. (laughs) There are a lot of problems with this idea. Mm. One of them, I would argue, is the separation of the ends and the means. Right. Because the means are also causing ends. That's a nice way of putting it. Like, you might say, oh, well, we can save lives by killing these lives. You're doing both. You might be saving lives, but you're also taking lives. It's it's sort of like the the trolley car experiment. Right. The great trolley car thought experiment. Where Which goes a little something like this.
1: Well, the thought experiment is that you are in a version of a streetcar and it is running amok, it's 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 no longer under your control and there are the the only thing that you can do is decide in this upcoming Junction, if it's going to go left or right. And if it goes in one direction, it's going to kill one person. And if it goes in another direction, it's going to kill four people. Now, to have fun with this thought experiment, where the question, of course, is what do you already pretty fun? Which way do you go? You can, you can change it up. You can say, well, if you go in one direction, the person you're going to hit is Mahatma Gandhi. But if you go in the other direction, The people you, the four people you're going to hit are all school children, you know, stuff like that. Like you can, you can add some flesh to this
0: flavor to it, a little spice, right?
1: You can change it. Maybe it's going to be Stalin that you hit.
0: Yeah. Four people you don't know. And one person that's really close to you. Right. Yeah.
1: You know, and and the question is, what do you do? And it's, it's kind of an impossible answer, but I kind
0: of a great party game.
1: Yes. For you, this should answer should be super easy, right? Kill one person instead of four.
0: It's a false dilemma. In the case of the streetcar, yeah, you only have two options. That wasn't the case with the FBI. They didn't right. have they didn't have a switch that they could pull. This is more like I'm driving down the street, I could run over four people, I could run over one person, or I could not run over anybody mm. or I could park the car. That's the thing about this. That's what makes this different from the trolley car. The trolley car is set up artificially so that you are forced into a choice between two undesirable consequences. That wasn't the case with the FBI here. There were other ways they could have handled this. Sure. And they did not. And in the end, uh, Barboza was murdered in California in 1976. Okay. There was the two FBI agents who were behind this. H. Paul Rico, he died of natural causes in 2006 while facing murder charges for a separate killing. Yeah. And FBI agent Dennis Condon died at 85 in 2009. Okay. So this is an example of the kind of logic that was used for programs like COINTELPRO for things like the Tuskegee syphilis experiment. Mm. For, for any of these wildly unethical, terrible decisions that were made so that they could get to sleep at night, they could tell themselves, we're doing this for the greater good. Sure. I disagree from a utilitarian perspective. I don't think that these things did go on to some kind of greater good. Mm. I don't think COINTELPRO did. I don't think this program did. I certainly don't think the Tuskegee syphilis experiment did. Mm. And so it's one thing to say, oh, yes, the ends justify the means is sort of like a, a way of covering your ass. But so often it's simply not the case.
1: Yeah, you're probably right. And I would fully agree with you. There is one, and I'm not trying to justify any of it. There are often not individuals actually in charge. The FBI is a collection of a whole bunch of people operating with a whole bunch of protocols and managerial dictates and bosses and this and that. And each of them makes just sort of like a little decision often. Again, I'm not trying to get anybody off the hook. I, too, would look at the whole institution and say, that's outrageous. And, of course, like you said earlier, the best disinfectant is sunlight. If we had some kind of civilian oversight, I feel like maybe less of this would be happening than has happened.
0: And, and, and in this case, though, there were people who were directly hands-on with this program. People like could, Were Rico they in a position
1: Martin. to say, we got to stop now?
0: They could have stopped. Would they? Yeah. They or would the
1: bosses they... have been like, well, guys...
0: You know, well, I mean, it's tricky because, of course, who was the head boss of the FBI at the time? It was Hoover. Hoover was only
1: like basically the only boss for 50 some years.
0: And so, to use another cliche, the fish rots from the head. mm -hmm. And when you have kind of a rotten fish head like J. Edgar Hoover, it's going to show up all throughout the FBI because it's going to make all things, I guess, possible.
1: I don't mean to get unnecessarily dark. Okay. But I remember this. One instance from a book about the gulag at the Russian prisons, at the Soviet prison system.
0: This is going to get dark.
1: It's no, it's so dark. And it actually comes from, it was an experience of the war. There was a soldier who was told to shoot civilians. And so there you are, you're told to shoot civilians. Now, you know, that's wrong. What are you going to do? If you say no, maybe you get shot. And then the person who replaces you goes and shoots the civilians. So I wonder, this is sometimes the worry I have with these kind of bureaucratic institutions, that there is a logic in place that's almost independent of any of the individuals carrying it out. It doesn't matter if these people said, no, I'm not going to do this, because while it does, in a sense, it matters for those individuals' conscience. It doesn't matter systemically because we just replace it with somebody who's more compliant and willing. And we've got lots of them.
0: No, it's true. And I there's another example of this, of this particular thing, but it's gonna to have to be its own episode. Uh-huh. And that is Whitey Bulger. Ooh, like the name. Yeah. Also Mob? Also Mob. They got the best nicknames. So this is this is got a lot of the same characters in it. And we'll do an entire episode where we look into these questions. Are people responsible? Is this just Hey, I'm in a bureaucracy. I'm doing my job. If I don't I mean, do it, look, someone else is going to do you it. You
1: are responsible in some way, but the outcome nonetheless is the same whether you take responsibility or not.
0: And they were behaving like extra legally. Later on when this came out, the prosecutor says, well, this is an outrage. Mm. If I had been told of this information, I wouldn't have been prosecuting these guys who were innocent of this crime. Right. See, there's a, there's an example of somebody who doesn't have the information. Sure to be able to make the ethical choice. Mm. But people like Rico and Condon did have that information. Mm. And like I said, we'll come back, we'll talk about the Whitey Bulger case, which is kind of like an even longer, even worse version of what happened here with Deegan. Because with Bulger, he killed a lot of people.
1: So it's, it's the story's a mess. The people in it are all messy and gross. And then our, our ethical conclusions are also a mess.
0: Yeah. Exactly. We start It's a good start start start. to the year. (laughs) The thing is, sometimes with people in positions of power who don't have oversight or accountability, it isn't a question of figuring out what's right and doing that thing, or being confronted by a no-win situation and choosing the action that causes the least harm. It's more like it's a matter of figuring out what you want to do, regardless of what's right, and then retroactively justifying your actions. It's why oversight and accountability are so crucial to help prevent this exact sort of thing from happening. So, now let's let's see it. Here, you reach in and grab something. All right.
1: Uh oh. Uh oh. I got two things. I'm going to let you choose. Ah. Do you want one that's going to make you mad or one that's going to make you really mad?
0: Well, really mad.
1: Really mad. Okay. You know how frustrating it is to get scam calls or scam emails. I mean, the calls are the worst, yeah. right?
0: And- Oh, it's funny you say that because that, that reminds me. I just got called. Apparently, my social insurance number was used in a crime. Right. And there's a phone number I have to call and right. I give them all my, if I give them all my credit cards, yes. then they can test those credit cards to make sure that they weren't also used in the crime. So remind me to do that after this episode.
1: Exactly. So that's the kind of thing that we're talking about right now where people, of course, all our listeners have had some experience of this. Certainly, there's the Nigerian Prince email scam. That was a, oh, that no, was that an was old chestnut too. from a oh, long no. time ago. In more updated versions, of course, uh, people are called and told that there's been a purchase, say, on Amazon. Somebody has purchased a really expensive phone using your credit card and you need to call them in order to get a refund and then you go through these steps or if you were involved in crypto that something has happened to your crypto wallet and now you need to call in order to ensure that your money gets refunded or doesn't get drained or
0: something like that. So, right, but then in the process of that, you have to provide your account number and your passwords to make sure it's really you.
1: Right, exactly. And of course, that's the that's the scam because what you're doing is you're talking to somebody on the other end who is not working for Amazon or not working for Microsoft or not working for the crypto wallet or whatever exchange you're, you're using. Instead, you're dealing with a scammer, probably part of a very large operation.
0: Yeah, they're probably sitting in an office building somewhere in exactly. a
1: cubicle. Exactly. They're doing this day in and day out. They often will target, again, vulnerable members in the population. They'll target the elderly who are maybe as savvy. I don't want to be too reductive here, but you know, maybe are not as savvy about the online community and maybe are more easily taken in apparently with more of the sex based ones where like
0: the catfishing ones
1: exactly like pretending to be an attractive young man or young woman interested in a relationship single parents are really good for those scams so there are certain people who get targeted more than others people new to the country immigrants
0: i mean we live in such scammy scammy times
1: yeah Now, if you're like me, when I've gotten these phone calls, I've sometimes done my little tiny bit of revenge justice where I try and mess with them somehow. I mean, obviously, it's stupid. It doesn't go anywhere. There are then people online, especially hackers, who, and I don't know how true this is, but they'll post videos on YouTube or TikTok or some other platform. Where they're actually able to somehow hack into their computers. They're able to hack into the
0: scammer computers,
1: hack into the scammers computers. They're able to see them through their cameras on their computers, the scammers. So the hackers will be able to see the scammers. They'll be able to delete their information, steal their information. And there is, of course, this moment of what the Germans will call schadenfreude, the the joy of somebody else's suffering and taking somebody down, and especially because they're a bad person, right? Well, that's the narrative that I've always believed in and, and sort of espoused, also because I too have done very minor things, like one of the, it's admittedly really silly, but one of the things that I've tried to do is just say yes to everything, like even when it doesn't make any Sense anymore when they ask you for your bank account, you just reply with yes. I even went as far occasionally to ask if they were unionized and and wanted to sort of, revert, you know, maybe like, start a union. Yeah, 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 like kind of hack into their social organization. So I thought this was fun. Other, you know, I've seen some of these videos. Other people are obviously having some fun with it. These videos are really popular. So, of course, there's an audience for getting back at these scammers. And before I go on, I want to say that a lot of these scammers are just straight up scammers, mean-spirited scammers or people who are knowingly working in these kinds of industries. Okay. But I discovered something pretty sad and scary. And just a a shout out to a fun book called Number Go Up by Zeke Fox. It's, It's just recently been published. And He is a financial journalist who rides the crypto wave kind of as an observer. As part of his investigation, his year-long investigation into the crypto currency scene at its hype and the NFT scene at its height, he becomes contacted by a scammer, apparently a beautiful young woman who just wants to start a conversation with this guy. Now He's in his mid-40s. He's married with, I don't know, three children or something. He's not the kind of person that the woman in the picture is desperately trying to connect with. You know, like she is a beautiful model. At least that's that's what is presented. And she is trying to get with this 40-something, you know, not super (laughs) in shape guy, right? And of course he knows it's a scam to try and drain his crypto wallet and get his overpriced jpegs or whatever but he plays along with it and it's a what you might call a long con where it's not right away it's not like the ones where hey somebody's made a purchase and you got to call us right now or you're going to lose a thousand bucks or you're going to lose everything in your in your account it was more based on trying to form a relationship with this person And then over a couple of weeks, they, the scammer kind of floats the idea that they've got this way of making a ton of money. And it's basically arbitrage where you buy here and sell there and you make a lot in the process and they have this kind of secret in and they're making tons of money. And, you know, you're supposed to be like, oh, I'm interested in that. Tell me more. And that's the hook. And that's then how you get suckered. And of course, people lost tons of money. But Zeke is a really great journalist and is really invested in his project and in this book. And so he really starts digging down into what's going on. Like, who are these scammers and what's going on? And what he discovers is the following. Basically, there is a human trafficking ring happening in countries like well East Asia. So so we're looking at countries like Thailand, Vietnam, the Philippines, Taiwan, and apparently it's organized out of China. What happens? And I've checked this so this comes mostly from Zeke's reporting, but then I've also asked people who've spent a bunch of time in the Philippines in particular About like, do you know about this? Have you heard about this? And apparently, this is something that people are warning their kids about. This is something that is known, is a known danger. So here's what happens. There is an ad in a newspaper, um, a help-wanted ad. It'll be something for an office manager or a call center operator or something like that. The trick is and that, and of course,
0: in those places, those jobs are good and safe, clean jobs—the kind of jobs that people want to get. And Call center jobs are are pretty sought after.
1: Yes, and what's more is that because these jobs are listed for outside of the country, so they'll be posted in, say, the Philippines or Vietnam, but the job itself happens in Cambodia or Myanmar. And the deal is that by going for a year, two, three years you get paid significantly more money than you would by just getting that same job domestically. So this is a draw for a bunch of people who find themselves maybe unemployed and unattached. This is exactly the kind of thing that I did in my early 20s when I was looking for English teaching work uh, abroad. So while I didn't go to Japan, there were organizations that would list jobs four English teachers in Japan and they would pay for your airfare. They would organize accommodations and they would have a job for you. And I was like, perfect. I really don't have to do any work here. Just sign up. Of course you don't get paid quite as much, but then you also don't have the hassle of trying to sort it all out on your own.
0: Yeah. It's like a temp agency.
1: Exactly. So what happens is that some of these jobs that are being posted are not legit. And when people apply to them, they get accepted, and they indeed do get flown to, say, Cambodia, where you are then picked up by a chauffeur. Zeke Fox recounts one person in particular who narrates this, but the the, the stories are endless. There are accounts of people who've been rescued. I'll get to those in a bit. They all follow essentially the same trajectory. This guy in particular, he gets out, gets into the car, And is being driven to what he expects is his place of residence. Because, you know, he just got off a plane. And then he's guessing, you know, tomorrow I'm going to start work in this new company. On the way, though, the car makes a kind of a pit stop. At which point, two unsavory guys get into the car with him. And he doesn't really know what's going on. He kind of thinks... I guess these are also people who have been picked up and are now going to work in this place and tries to make conversation with them, but they're not very friendly. They're not making conversation with him. So he gets a weird feeling, but you know, I mean, what? Like you're in a new place and two guys aren't talking to you. So maybe they're nervous. Maybe they're shy. You don't know that you've been caught in a human trafficking ring. So he gets driven to a compound. Now, apparently in Cambodia and Myanmar, there are massive office towers that are completely self-contained. They've got, basically they're like a walled community with guards outside. And inside they have a grocery store, dormitories, Offices, which are all call centers with cubicles and computers and phones. Your phone is taken away, your passport is taken away, and you are locked in and you don't get to leave. And you have to meet your quota of money that you have to bring in so that you don't get the living daylights beaten out of you by the guards who are patrolling these call centers. They don't get to leave ever. There's no weekend. There's no outdoor time. You work. You go to bed. You wake up. You have a shower. You can go to the grocery store inside the compound. That's it. You don't talk to anybody else. And apparently, it's even worse than that. Apparently. Now, of course, we don't have much access to life inside these compounds because once you're in, you tend not to get out. The few people who have come out have told these really harrowing tales, including of murder, where people were thrown off the tops of these buildings, and bodies have apparently been found sort of just outside the perimeter of the compound. And this is apparently all being organized by gangs that are profiting immensely off of these Scam calls, so crypto is involved, and there is a way then I don't know enough about crypto to really be able to explain how this works, but apparently there is a way of anonymizing crypto, so you through a complex process, believing that you're going to get rich on you know the receiving end of the scam you you fall for this, and then you go through the mechanisms of transferring five hundred a thousand ten thousand dollars over to a person you think is kind of your lover. And in doing that, they you have to turn it into crypto. They get that crypto, and then they're able to anonymize it and turn it into American dollars on their end. And I was shocked that a portion of the scam calls that we in North America and in Europe are receiving are predicated on a human trafficking slave organization, which also then totally flipped the script again for me in terms of kind of getting back at the scammers, right. where the scammer is in some cases themselves a victim and much more so a victim than I am.
0: Yeah, the levels of exploitation are deeper than you thought. The level, the level of exploitation isn't just them trying to get your credit card number It's also the labor of the person who's trying to get your credit card number.
1: Well, the person who's getting the credit card number effectively has a gun to their head. Yeah. And that is really terrifying.
0: Yeah. It it reminds me of back when World of Warcraft was really big. And that is a a massive online computer game where people run around and they are orcs and they kill dragons and they get gold.
1: Yes. And – you can make uh, money in the game,
0: right? Yeah, you you can like make money by gold mining or you can, you know, sow things. I, I don't actually know how the game works that well, but I do know there's a lot of tedious things you can do to get gold. Mm. And also there is an exchange where you can sell that gold for actual currencies. Right. And of course, it turned out that there were Chinese prisoners who were forced to play Warcraft like 12 hours a day. Right and if they didn't make enough gold which would then be sold to american players right. if they didn't make enough again there was a danger that they could be beaten yeah
1: yeah yeah it's exactly like that and i was really surprised that apparently also according to the author this is basically the one of the very few actual uses of cryptocurrency There's all these ideas about how it might be used and how it's really going to replace the banking system, most of which I am personally completely unconvinced by. But you could say, well, okay, where are the receipts? Like, how is it actually being used right now today, even though these are all the future promises? There's very little use for crypto today. You can speculate on it. You can buy a JPEG with it, NFT. But one of the biggest uses is this human trafficking scam thing.
0: Yeah. I mean when we did a whole episode on scamming last year, I remember I was I had to like get into the that scam community. Right. And remember I was getting as we were doing the episode, yeah. I was getting texts from people being like, Hey, you wanna get in on my crypto scene? Yeah. Three or four times as yeah. we were recording.
1: And what is so terrifying now is that some of those people might have been yeah. in a kind of human prison camp in Cambodia where because you didn't send crypto, right? they got the crap kicked out of them.
0: Yeah, what a terrible situation. Wow, man. Anyway, oh.
1: so we started out well, I guess. We yeah. started
0: out dark. Yeah, started out dark. Do we get darker or do we get less dark? Well, hold on. Let's see what we got. Let's see what happens. Ooh, that
1: looks interesting.
0: Paranoia. Oh, there we go. Let's talk about paranoia. Okay. Let's back up. Oh, okay. All right. Human brains are amazing. Mhm. You've got one? Think so. I've got like 3 quarters of one. <laughs> and they're they're complicated, they're capable. I mean, this is uh, it, it's it's sort of obvious, but it's also wild to think about. It's the most complicated thing we've ever encountered in the universe is the human brain.
1: Just saying that to my daughter yesterday. Yeah, that's literally. an
0: amazing thing. And then, of course, you probably followed up with, there's other things that we don't know about that are more complicated. I'm sure it's a big universe. more Maybe, blah. yeah. But we haven't found them yet. We haven't found them. As far as we know, the things in our skulls are the most complicated things we have ever come across. That's amazing. Yeah, which I had to get there because her position was, why don't
1: we know more about brains? We It, it started with, is AI sentient? I was like, look. We don't know what generates sense. She was she was really shocked by the state of neurological research. Right, in and our... philosophy of mind. <laughs> so uh, we had to make that point. It's like this is the most complicated thing that we know.
0: Yeah. The, our brains are so complicated, it's hard even for our complicated brains to understand them. Yeah. Yeah, makes sense. One of the amazing things that our brains do, of course, and this is so important to our work, detect patterns in the world around us. Yes. This allows us to understand language. We couldn't have language if we didn't have this ability to, to put patterns together and, and, and recognize similarities and differences and things like that. Because of our ability to see patterns, we can predict things before they happen mm-hmm. based on our understanding of prior patterns that we've encountered. We can create new things that haven't existed before. We can come up with new ideas through making connections between previously unconnected things. Brains. Super. They're, Patter- the, they're the best.
1: Hyper pattern recognizers.
0: Yeah and this allows us to survive and thrive i mean there's 8 billion of us or whatever yeah despite the fact that we're real squishy and slow and vulnerable and easy to choke right however okay this capacity of course can obviously sometimes go wrong on us
1: mhm mental illness of some sort some types of mental illness yeah is a hyper or an over recognition of patterns yeah like illusory patterns that seem to indicate something but actually, you're you're overreading it. You're, you're kind of over-interpreting the data.
0: Yeah. The way that we often talk about it when we're lecturing is we use a metaphor of the immune system. Our immune system is fantastic and complicated, and bugs and germs and stuff come in, and they're detected, and our bodies react appropriately and protect us from being harmed. But occasionally, that those same processes through which we can protect ourselves from the outside world... They go a bit haywire, and that's what allergies are. What happens there is your immune system's like, hey, a peanut wildly overreacts, closes up your throat to try to protect you, ends up choking you. Right. The system that's trying to protect you actually puts you in danger. And this Mm. is sort of what happens with patternicity. It allows us to survive and understand the world. But when cranked up too far, then we start to create a world that doesn't actually even exist. Right. This is the problem. When it goes wrong, our brains act against us. It's the difference between healthy skepticism mm-hmm. and paranoia. Mm-hmm. It's the difference between creativity and madness. Right. And so having said that, I want to talk about one of your favorite authors. Okay. Philip K. Dick. All right. Yes. Extremely prolific science fiction author, 44 novels, over a 100 short stories. Mm-hmm. Uh, born in 1928 in Chicago, starts writing stories in the 50s. And he starts writing at a time when science fiction – was starting the process of moving out of the world of like pulp. Yes. Into the world of literature. Like, this is no, this isn't just some pulp magazine story about flying saucers. This is like good literature.
1: That's also what I really like about him is that it's still pulpy in a way. He he retains that heritage of the paperback, 40s, pop boiler, flying ridiculous, saucer, little
0: green men. That
1: kind of stuff. Yeah. And merges it with some really interesting philosophical ideas, a more sophisticated literary style, and both are going on.
0: He's a fantastic author. He really is. And he's I bit... had a
1: big argument about him with a with a owner of a bookstore. That's,
0: that's right. I remember when this happened. You got into a big <laughs> fight with a bookstore owner. <laughs> oh yeah. And he's written a lot of what are now considered sci-fi classics. Yeah. A man in the high castle. Mm-hmm. Yeah, a lot of the stuff has been turned into TV shows or yeah. movies. Well, it's very, very filmable mm-hmm. because his ideas are so interesting Yeah, because of his ability to take new ideas and synthesize them and put things together that you wouldn't ordinarily have put together and his ability to see patterns. What was Android's Dream of Electric Sheep was yeah. turned into what film? And so as a person who has, even by human standards, a pretty impressive brain, Philip K. Dick is including all these sort of fascinating themes in his pulpy works. Metaphysical ideas about the nature of God and the universe, philosophy of mind ideas about identity and consciousness, uh, epistemology, the study of knowledge, things about virtual worlds. He was a real pioneer in this idea of the virtual world, uh, like a world of illusions where you're sort of interacting with things that aren't there, but they feel there and you can't tell what's real and what isn't real. He's talking about politics and totalitarianism. Blade Ofero. Runner, by the way. Blade Runner, yeah. That that's was him. A,
1: that's Electric Sheep.
0: Yeah. That's what Electric Sheep was turned into. So this guy's a giant in the sci-fi world. Yeah,
1: yeah. He's huge.
0: Yeah. And, like deserves, you have, you and have, deservedly.
1: Yeah. And you have, like, you've seen his works. Yeah. They are out there. Even you if have, you
0: don't know you have. You exactly. Have. Exactly. Yeah. Here's the thing. He's also an interesting study in this question of at what point does creativity become madness? At what point does skepticism become paranoia?
1: Yeah well I wish you had told me this was coming because I did a bit of a well was it a deep dive I got very interested in the purple light. So Philip K Dick the person has complicated relationship with Christianity. He's certainly not a Christian in the very traditional sense. He's not going to church, but there's a moment in the 70s where a beam of purple light becomes manifest to him, and he has an engagement with it where he starts to believe that it is providing revelation yeah. of some sort to him. And his books after he encounters the purple light, they get they, yeah, weird. They take a, re- they take a real like, turn. They get they get like it's a different universe that you enter
0: now. They, they become much more creative. Yes. But also maybe they become more mad.
1: Yeah, I would say so.
0: And there's a, there's a lot of reasons why this happens to Philip K. Dick. But also there are, as this is happening, there are people saying, okay, is this genius or is this madness? Yeah. And it gets even more complicated than that because he's at a, he's living in a time period and a place, America, during the Cold War. Right. Where we could be asking. Oh, I know where this is going. We could be asking, okay, so what is, What is paranoia? Can you be paranoid in the Cold War? My
1: favorite author meets your favorite author.
0: Yeah. Eventually, this story is getting to my favorite author taking on your favorite author. Who I'm also really coming around to. Because the Cold War was a time where something like MKUltra, if somebody said, hey, the CIA is experimenting on on my brain, you might dismiss that as paranoia. Right. When in fact, it was actually possibly true. Possibly. Possibly. Well, that's the weird thing about paranoia
1: is that – You know, sometimes you can be paranoid about the thing that's actually happening. Sometimes the thing is actually happening, but to somebody else.
0: Yep. It's a mess. Oh, it's a mess. And this is a mess. This story is a mess. Because I mentioned that one of the things he was interested in was authoritarian governments. Mm -hmm. He was an anti-authoritarian. Yep. And he claimed to have some direct experience as a person, not in fiction, but in real life with government overreach, since he claimed he had become a target of the CIA operation chaos. Really? Yeah. So what – now, chaos – somehow we haven't talked about this yet in the episodes. Chaos was a CIA program, a domestic surveillance program, starts in the late 60s. It's kind of almost identical to the FBI COINTELPRO. Mm. So that's bad. Not good. Because COINTELPRO sucked. Yep. COINTELPRO was a massive overreach. That's the one where the FBI is trying to convince Martin Luther King Jr. to kill himself. Yep. It's the one where they sort of convinced Gene Seberg to take her own life.
1: Yep. Yep.
0: Like this was, and those
1: are like the highlights because there the was then all the rank and file of people, oh. activists engaged in political reform, expressing very legitimate grievances about the Vietnam War,
0: about civil racial
1: rights. inequality, civil rights, whatever, and they were being seriously messed with.
0: Yeah, by the FBI and by the CIA, right? With Operation Chaos, mm-hmm. great name though. Yeah, you got to give them credit for that fantastic name. Now the CIA isn't even really supposed to be spying on Americans on American soil. Yeah,
1: no, not just a little bit. Like they're totally not supposed to. Yeah, that's why you have the FBI.
0: Yeah, they're. Like, they're that's that's also why su- they don't get along.
1: That's why they don't get along. Yeah, J. Edgar Hoover was. He comes up again weirdly. He was not happy about this because he was actually there during the creation of the CIA. He was like. No, no, this is clearly stepping on my toes. Exactly, for the FBI here.
0: Yeah, we're the ones that are supposed to be out of control and spying on everybody. (laughs) What are you guys, you new kids on the block? We've been out of control for a while now. So, to give you a flavor, this is from a 1968 CIA internal memo. HQS is engaged in sensitive high-priority program concerning foreign contacts with U.S. individuals and organizations of the radical left. Included in this category are radical students, anti Vietnam War activists, draft resistors, and assorted new leftists. Mm-hmm. The objective is to discover the extent to which Soviets, Chicoms I don't even know. Chinese communists. Oh my goodness. Cubans and other communist countries are exploiting our domestic problem in terms of subversion and espionage. Of particular interest is any evidence of foreign direction, control, training, or funding. Yep. So which, this was a, this is a real program.
1: Which annoyingly though was also actually happening,
0: yes, also true yeah there there actually was subversion, and there was espionage yeah the problem and and, part- were,
1: and, the, and, the, and like the Soviet Union was actually running the Communist Party, yeah, like the American Communist Party, that's where they got their money from, they didn't know, but that's where they got the money from, there was direction given and and that wasn't just the only way that they were being manipulated,
0: so to sum up, if I may. <laughs> We have Philip K. Dick, who may or may not be paranoid. I'm going to make the argument that probably he was. Sure. Arguing that he is the target of this ridiculous sounding program, which is real. Right. Which is a legit program, which is trying to track down subversion and espionage from the communists, which was happening. Yes. Although these programs never seem to be, do a good job oh, yeah, of actually... No, they- finding anybody or getting or chasing the right people
1: no nor did for that matter did the money from the soviet union do a very good job of actually directing the with maybe the exception of the communist party actually directing any of the activities of the domestic radicals yeah who are mad about things like the vietnam war and not wanting to go to the front lines and die understandably you don't need to be a paid Soviet agent, to right.
0: be worried about To say, that. hey, wait, what is this war for? Right. So by 1977, <laughs> Philip K. Dick claims that he has seen his CIA file and he has seen his FBI file and that he's a target of both chaos and COINTELPRO. Okay.
1: Did he have the names? Yes. Because if he's got the names of the operations...
0: He has the names of the operations. Of oh. course, this was after they oh, came is... out. Oh, Seymour oh, Hirsch had been doing his oh, investigative oh, okay, work. Okay, 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 okay. So as to whether he was a genuine target, that's harder to say. He has, he's got a weird relationship with the FBI and the CIA. Oh, okay? Because actually, I mean, part of what makes Philip K. Dick such a brilliant writer, he, he can see patterns and connections where other people might not. But there's always then that question, is he seeing patterns that aren't really there? And I think that for Philip K. Dick, that line gets crossed a lot. Mm-hmm. In 1972, he writes to the FBI saying that he had been approached by a representative of a neo-Nazi organization who wanted him to start putting secret signals in his novels. Huh. And he told the FBI that, in his opinion, there was another science fiction author who had clearly also been approached and was following through with it and was putting secret neo-Nazi signals in his books. And that that author was Thomas Dish.
1: Okay, and I don't know him.
0: Who I wasn't familiar with either, but he he was a huge science fiction author. Oh, okay. And probably not secretly putting neo-Nazi messages right, in his books. Right.
1: This is the over-recognition of This patterns. is the over-recognition right.
0: problem. Uh, there had also been some break-ins at Philip K. Dick's house, and he told the police that he thought it might be related also. It's, it's all coming together. Everything that's it's happening, all connected. It's, it's all connected yeah, to yeah, this. Yeah. And there wasn't really any evidence for any of it. And so we start to see that his ability to see these interesting patterns is maybe making him more vulnerable to tilting into things like illness, I think also contributing to this is copious use of drugs.
1: Oh, okay. What was he using? Because he doesn't strike me like a pothead or an acid freak. He seems more like a kind of an opioid. It it was pharmaceuticals. Yeah, yeah, yeah.
0: Yeah.
1: Uh, And those pharmaceuticals in the 70s, they would mess you up. (laughs) Yeah.
0: And of course, there's a relationship between all of these things. There's a relationship between mental health. And and drug use and paternity and all of these things. Our our minds are brain. Our brains are super complicated, and they're kind of easy to kind of trip them up a little bit. Another one of the times where I think Philip K. Dick's genius tilts into a kind of madness involves my favorite science fiction author, uh, Stanislaw Lem, who we've talked about before on episodes. Because yeah, yeah, yeah. His, yeah with the robots, with the robot stuff. Yeah. So Stanislaw Lem. After World War II and the Nazi occupation of Poland ended, because Lem is a Polish writer, he's trained as a medical doctor, doesn't want to get drafted into the army, so he quits being a doctor, starts writing in the late 1940s, and runs into trouble almost immediately with Soviet censorship rules.
1: Yeah, I could imagine why. Because a lot, I can't read him without also reading a critique of Soviet bureaucracy.
0: Yeah. Like, to me, that is what he is writing about. Yeah, it's one of his main things. Now, the
1: futurological congress. I mean, that you could book. just see like him dealing with apparatchiks, and you know the kind of the 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 weird internal logic. You can never get out of it, and everybody's like, everything's fine, and just go along with it. And, and it's the same with memoirs in a bathtub.
0: Like, yeah, I mean, he. But here's the thing. Yeah. Because of his early work is realistic. He's telling semi-biographical stories about his time in working in mental institutions during World War II and things like that. But once he gets in trouble with the Soviet censorship, he says, all right, I'm only doing science fiction from here on in. Mm -hmm. And he's going to start hiding all of his critiques in science fiction.
1: Yeah,
0: Kind of like Rod Serling did with the Twilight Zone in America in the early 1960s. There was a bunch of things that Rod Serling wanted to say about the dangers of prejudice, about the the madness of the Cold War. But he wasn't allowed to do that without being called a communist and being picked on by the FBI. So you stick him in these weird science fiction stories. Right. Same thing Lem is doing. And so in 1974, Philip K. Dick writes to the FBI again, this time claiming that he had uncovered a communist conspiracy. Okay. And the communist conspiracy was this. Stanislaw Lem, the author, wasn't a real person. Oh. But was instead... An entire team of KGB operatives uh-huh. working with Frederick Jameson okay. to infiltrate America by placing anti-American messages in science fiction works. Wow. Yeah. Nice conspiracy. It's not bad. For the people at home, very quickly, who's Frederick Jameson? He is a Western Marxist literary theorist. Yeah. All right. So here is a bit of the message to the FBI from 12K Dick. Lem is probably a composite committee rather than an individual. Since he writes in several styles, and sometimes reads foreign to him languages, and sometimes does not, to gain monopoly positions of power from which they can control opinion through criticism and pedagogic essays is a threat to our whole field of science fiction and its free exchange of views and ideas. The main successes would appear to be in the fields of academic articles, book reviews, and possibly through our organization the control in the future of the awarding of honors and titles. I think, though, at this time, that their campaign to establish Lem himself as a major novelist and critic is losing ground. It has begun to encounter serious opposition. Lem's creative abilities now appear to have been overrated, and Lem's crude, insulting, and downright ignorant attacks on American science fiction writers went too far too fast and alienated everyone but the party faithful. I am one of those highly alienated. It is a grim development for our field, and it's hopes to find much of our criticism in academic theses and publications completely controlled by a faceless group in Krakow, Poland. What can be done, though? I do not know.
1: It reminds me of the joke. Where, you know, there's this question of who is Shakespeare really? Oh yeah, right. Was Shakespeare Shakespeare? And the joke goes, well, Shakespeare wasn't Shakespeare. He was another author by the same name.
0: Oh, it's a good joke. <laughs> uh i get jokes yeah no what's, it's what's what's brown and sticky
1: uh stick
0: yes also a good joke so the problem is unlike shakespeare who was alive long enough ago so that we can maybe ask that question mm. lem is a pretty recent person
1: well he just died in 2006 or yeah, something he, he died he? fairly like, recently pretty recently
0: and he was a public figure and he definitely existed yeah also, he was very, as you pointed out, he was very critical of the Soviet system.
1: Yeah, which he, I feel like is very obvious.
0: Yeah, yeah. He's not he's not hiding it. Like, it, the amazing thing is, it's surprising Lem didn't get in more trouble than he did. The other thing is that, like, at this point, I think we can see that Philip K. Dick, this amazing mind who's able to come up with these amazing ideas, his mind is sort of working against him at this point.
1: What? Well, when is this?
0: This is the mid-70s. Yeah,
1: I think that's around the time he sees the light, too. Yeah. I think he sees the light in 76.
0: Yeah. And so it is, I think, a bit of a cautionary tale. Mm. It's a cautionary tale, although it's such a complicated story because I guess the question is, can you be too paranoid in paranoid times? Mm -hmm. It's the Cold War. Lem's getting in trouble for what he's writing, and so he is putting hidden messages in his books. He has to. Philip K. Dick is talking about how he's being surveilled and... People are like trying to read his mail and and bugging his phone at a time when the CIA and the FBI are doing those things to innocent people. Where is the the paranoia? Where is the skepticism? Where do we draw the lines? How are we supposed to get through these times, these bizarre times, while holding on to enough of our sanity so that we don't topple into madness and over pattern recognition? How do we do it? Because this is our whole lives. This is our whole job. Well, and there are cautionary
1: tales also of people like us who do flip over into a misreading of reality precisely because they've just been dealing with this stuff for too long yeah i mean you're you're it's an interesting question how do we do it i I'm not sure, and I don't know that's a very satisfying answer. One thing though that I was thinking about as you were talking is paranoia. The the common way we would think about it is that paranoia is r- relative to what's happening in your environment. So if you are right about it, you were not paranoid. And I'm not sure that that is true. So here's a question. Can you still be paranoid about something that really happened?
0: Well, you can be right. But if your belief wasn't justified by evidence... Even if you turn out to be right later, yeah. you still didn't have reason to believe what you believed. You didn't have a justified belief. So if you have just,
1: yeah, I wonder.
0: Well, I mean,
1: Sometimes, on. you know, we've come back, and this is, I think, one of your refrains often both in class and on the podcast, is that the universe is doesn't really care about us.
0: It's true. <laughs> is <laughs> that, that something I say a lot? It is. And it oh, is. You should, sorry, uh, everybody.
1: People out there, you should have just seen Nathan turn so happy when I said that. Just this big smile came across his face.
0: Yeah. The universe doesn't care about us. Ultimately, that's sort of what I try to get from this story, yeah. is, is trying to find that fine line. Because we need brains like Philip K. Dix. Mm-hmm. Fascinating brain coming up with all sorts of new ideas, making interesting connections. But eventually, those connections start to kind of turn on him, and like an allergic reaction, kind of closes up his throat a bit. Yeah. Those are things that we'll revisit in a future episode. The importance of paying attention to your own mental health and the relationship between mental health and conspiratorial thinking. So I guess we got to be careful.
1: Okay. We
0: should touch grass. <laughs> be with people. I mean, that's always good advice. Unless, of course, those people are FBI agents from the 1960s.